that God has always been faithful to us. He always holds us. He walks through the valley of the shadow of death. And by the way, the one who is in the valley of the shadow, the shadow in the valley of the shadow of death, that shadow is Jesus. He's overshadowing you as he walks with you through, through that valley in your life. What a beautiful, beautiful song. So let's turn to uh, Matthew chapter 24, and we are nearing the end of our series on living in light of eternity. We have today's message, and we'll conclude this next Sunday. Today's topic is going to be on the second coming of Christ. Uh, If you were to go back to the book of Acts in chapter 1 and verse 11, you would read these words. Um, Jesus is ascending up into heaven, and there's, you know, the disciples are standing there watching all of this, and it says that two angels stood by them and said, this same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. And so anytime there is a world event, especially if it is a negative world event, people begin asking the question, if you really tune your ears to what people are saying right now, whether on the news or uh, on social media, people keep asking the question, is this the end of time? Is this the end of time? Is, is the world going to come to an end? Is the world going to come? Is Jesus coming back? Is Jesus coming back? And all of that is a big yes. <laughs> uh, you've been living in the end time since he ascended back into heaven, but we are certainly drawing closer and closer because as Jesus speaks about this very issue in Matthew 24 and 25, you can see the parallel passages in Luke 21 and Mark chapter 13, Jesus addresses these issues about world events and how those will unfold uh, across humanity and as they escalate in both intensity as well as frequency, it is a sign to us that Jesus is preparing for his return. If you were to look at the Old Testament, there are 300 passages of scripture that deal with Jesus' coming. 100 of those deal with his first coming. 200 of them deal with his second coming. And so Jesus, he says, I've come the first time, and I can guarantee you I will come again. And so as disciples of Jesus who believe that he is coming back, if we believe that he could come back in our lifetime, then we're going to live a little bit different than if we, yeah, believe that Jesus is coming back, but probably not going to be in my lifetime. It might be a thousand years down the road. You're probably going to live a little different than those who believe that, yes, I believe in my lifetime that he is actually coming back. And truly, I do believe that. God gave me that vision many, many years ago that I would be alive when this took place. We'll we'll see if I prove to be a, a false prophet or not. But uh, I, I can tell you where I am and, yeah, when it happens. So here's the, here's the question of the day that we really want to get at the heart of um, is simply this. When, when it comes to Jesus' return and really anything in life, our behavior is always a reflection of our beliefs. Our behavior is always a reflection of our beliefs. Luke 6.45 says, The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart, for out of the overflow of his heart his mouth speaks. In other words, what is in you will come out of you both in words as well as in actions. What you truly believe is going to come out, words, actions, what's in your heart. 
You know, we can say that we believe something, but if we don't really act upon it, then do we actually believe it? Even in relationships, does a person love you just because they say they love you? Or is there some level of action attached to the love that they're professing? You know, if your spouse says to you every day, I love you, but never displays any kind of affection or any signs of love other than just the mere words, you probably would begin questioning whether or not that person actually loves you or not because there's no action backing up what they are saying. And so obviously there has to be some level of action because saying, is, saying it is easy, but doing something is much more difficult. Your actions and beliefs need to match. Well, this is true in every area of your life, and it certainly should be true when it comes to our belief about the return of Christ. What does a return mean? What does it look like? Should the return of Jesus make us afraid? Absolutely not. Paul says it ought to bring us hope and comfort that Jesus is coming back one day. It's not, it's not given to us to make us afraid. Remember, prophecy is not given to us to build fear within us, but to prepare us and to live in light of the coming of Jesus. Or uh, if the coming of Christ, if I really believe it, should I be stocking up arms and armor and buying thousands of cans of Spam and tuna fish, and, you know, for preparing for the great apocalypse? And by the way, I think that's the only way that Spam is really still in, in business is because people are, you know, stocking up Spam like thousands of cans in case, you know, we, we, you know, the great third world, com world war comes and we've got to, you know, hunker down in some bunker somewhere. I don't know. Uh, I, all I know is I had to eat it as a kid and I've never touched it since then. So I just don't, it doesn't resonate with me. But <laughs> the reality is Jesus' return should cause us to live differently, to think differently, to relate differently, to interact differently. The things that we do, the decisions that we make, the way that we spend our resources and our time. If I really am living, believing that, yes, he could come at any moment, any day in my lifetime, then certainly I will live different than if I can just kind of like a baby, out of sight, out of mind. Yeah, he's going to come someday not really worried about it. In fact, I'll deal with it when he, if he does. But until then, you know, I'm just going to do my own thing. So remember that his coming, uh, the second coming of Jesus comes in two phases. Uh, there is the first phase is the rapture of the church, which is the next event on God's calendar. There is no prophecy that has to be fulfilled before that happens. Jesus comes to gather up the believers on planet earth, and he brings with them who have died in Christ and resurrects their bodies reunites them with their soul and spirit, and we'll all be together. And then this initiates and inaugurates the seven-year period of time known as the tribulation. During that seven-year period of time, there are a series of judgments that will come upon the earth. There are seal judgments, seven of those, seven trumpet judgments, judgments, seven bull judgments. And at that time, the Antichrist is rising up. In fact, the second half of the tribulation is known as the great tribulation. And Jesus says, if those days had not been cut short, no one would have survived. And it's during this time uh, of tribulation that the, one of the big things people are always interested in is about the mark of the beast. What is the mark of the beast? Who takes the mark of the beast? Do you know you're getting the mark of the beast? Do you have to take the mark of the beast? So we, we discussed that in a previous um, message, but I do want to share with you something that I just saw on my news feed yesterday. There is a company in the good old U.S. of A. Uh, took a picture of a young man who was holding a T-shirt, and it said on the T-shirt, I got chipped. 
And so there's a company named Three Squares Market. It's a firm that, uh, that makes cafeteria kiosks, and uh, they are replacing their vending machines. And uh, so what they are doing is they are inserting a rice-sized chip into the, the, the hand of every employee. And, of course, they're doing it under the guise of, well, uh, this will do away with company badges. Nobody's going to have to remember logins to the computers. You just kind of scan your hand, you know. And, of course, we've been somewhat conditioned by this. I mean, you can use your iPhone to scan things. You can pay for things without money. But if you've got an Apple account and you just kind of Apple pay and so, um, yeah, so this is becoming very, very popular. In fact, there are over 3,000 employees in Europe already who um, have been chipped, and they're, and they're marketing this wholeheartedly. This comes from a company out of Sweden. The owner, uh, Joan Osterlin, has struck alliances with companies all over the world. And so, what am I saying? Am I saying this is the mark of the beast? No. I'm just simply saying people are being conditioned to take the mark of the beast, thinking, hey, this is just what we do in the normal everyday life. And so, you have to look at what's going on in our world, even out of the COVID experience. There are a lot of things that we are being conditioned for, and there are a lot of slogans that are being put out there to condition our minds for future events, especially for the rise of the Antichrist as he brings the world into a one-world government, a one-world economy, and a one-world religion. And so we saw in the sixth bowl of the judgment, of the final of the three judgments, that the Euphrates River would dry up, that the armies led by the Antichrist would come into the Valley of Megiddo for the Battle of Armageddon. Now, most people have heard the word Armageddon because there is a movie by that name. And in that film, there's this giant meteor that's heading towards planet Earth for a collision. And uh, we have to blow it up before it gets here. Most people, when they think about the Battle of Armageddon, they think of, oh, this is going to be World War III, and we are going to annihilate humanity through a nuclear warfare. So a lot of people have lived for, in fear for many years because they believe this is how the world's going to come to an end. But since we take our information from God's word and not man's ideas, that is not what God says. The world does not come to the end because of some nuclear holocaust. Revelation chapter 16 says where this battle takes place and for what purpose. Remember, the Antichrist has been cast out of the heavenlies down to earth, halfway into the tribulation. He is furious at God, and so he's going to level his fury towards God's children, the nation of Israel. He gathers the armies to go at war against Israel, and while he's gathering those armies in the valley of Megiddo, Jesus comes back. That's Jesus' second return that is described for us in Revelation chapter 19. And so Jesus will return, and he will bring with him uh, the armies of, of the heavens. He's going to bring with him all of the saints of God, and Jesus will speak a word. He, this is not going to be a, a physical hand-to-hand -hand combat. No, Jesus just speaks the word, and he brings an end to this battle. So I want to answer the question, are you ready, or at least you consider the question, are you ready for the return of Christ? Are you living as though you are ready for the return of Jesus? In other words, does your behavior reflect what you actually believe? So here are four truths that we're going to bear out in Matthew chapter 24 as we conclude this chapter concerning the return of Jesus. Number one, the time of Jesus' return will be seen by the entire world. 
It's going to be seen by the entire world. Now, remember when Jesus comes and raptures the church, it happens so fast, it's the twinkling of an eye. It's not being viewed by the world because the world's going to say, where did all these people go? You know, if about 3 billion Christians all of a sudden are gone from planet Earth, the world's reeling, thinking, what in the world has happened to all these people? So, you know, all kinds of explanations are going to be given by all the experts. And, you know, aliens came down, swooped down, told you there were aliens. And they came down and swooped them out of the world. They're going to take them and do some kind of experiments on us or whatever. You know, all kinds of things will be put out there as to what has happened to all of those individuals. But in the second coming, it is something that the world is seeing. It's, they're, they're a part of it, those who are left alive till the end of the tribulation. So let's pick up Matthew 24, and it says in verse 29, immediately after the distress of those days, what days? He's talking about the distress of the tribulation, in particular the great tribulation, the last three and a half years. After the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming. So how, that, how is that going to be possible? Because we know that our, our earth is round, and you, if you're on this side of the globe, how are you going to see what's going on on that side of the globe? Trust me, God can make that happen. All right? It's not a stretch for him. And so it says everybody's going to see this. They're going to witness the coming of the man, Son of Man on the clouds of the sky with power and with great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all of these things, what things, the things that are transpiring in the tribulation, you know that it is near right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation, now get this. Jesus wasn't talking about the generation who were listening to him, his disciples. He's talking about the generation who's alive at the time of his second coming, those who are alive at the end of the tribulation, at the battle of Armageddon. will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Now, we also noted that the seventh bowl judgment, which is the very last judgment in the tribulation, resulted in this massive earthquake where all of the oceans are gone, the mountains are leveled, and from the sky, these huge hailstones weighing about 100 pounds are pouncing on earth. Now, you would think at that point in time, after all the humanity has been through, and those who have, who have survived all of that, that they would be repenting and getting their heart light right with God, like, Lord, you know, please, you know, save me. No, the Bible says that they are cursing God, and, and they're just like, you know, just out of pride and just sheer anger. They're, they're cursing God for the devastation that is happening. Now, notice that the sun is darkened, the stars fall from the skies. The, think about this. The armies have gathered in the valley of Armageddon. The sun's gone blank. It's darkened. Stars have fallen out of the sky, which is kind of, rem you know, the darkness is kind of reminiscent when Jesus was on the cross and darkness covered the earth. And it's pitch black. And here they are. I wonder what they are thinking. Could you imagine being a part of the army, of somebody's army, and you're, you know, I mean, just seeing all this, 
Now, when it talks about this earthquake, it's talking not about just the shaking of the earth. It's talking about the shaking of the entire solar system. What are people thinking at this moment? I'm glad you asked, because I'm going to tell you. Not because I know, because Jesus said. Here's what they're thinking. Luke chapter 21, if you want to turn there for a moment. In Luke chapter 21, beginning in verse 25, Jesus says, uh, again, this is Luke's version of the same thing that Jesus is talking about here in, in Mark 24. Here's what he says. There will be the signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. Men will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Notice it says heavenly bodies, not just the earth. Heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and with great glory. Now, here are some words that he uses here. The words anguish, perplexity, and, and like a fainting from terror. The word anguish is only used here in Matthew, uh, in Luke's gospel, and um, one other place in the entire New Testament. The other words describing perplexity uh, and, and fainting and tear is only used in Luke's gospel in that place. Why is that? Because what God is saying, in other words, is that the, the terror is so great, so unique, is the fear of that moment that God has to use unique words that he's not used before or rarely in order to describe it. When the sun goes dark and the moon goes dark and the planets are shaking, we're not talking about an earthquake. We're talking about this solar system quake. When that happens, people will have heart attacks. They're going to faint in terror. In fact, the word draws out the thought is that they will breathe their last breath. I mean, it's something that we can't even begin to imagine. And so in 24, back to Matthew, in verse 30, it says, and the sign of the Son of Man is that he will appear in the sky and all the, the nations will mourn. And, and they will see the Son of Man coming on clouds of the sky in power, great power and glory. Notice he comes in great power. Why does he come on the clouds? Because that's the way he left. That's what the angel said. He's going to come back the way he left. He comes in great power. And think about this. Jesus, the power. He has, put, he has the power to put creation into chaos and to reorganize it and bring it back again. Jesus has the power to put plants out, planets out into orbit, order, reconfigure them, and bring them back into order. To restore in a millisecond what the original flood stage produced on planet Earth. Because when Jesus sets up his millennial kingdom, planet Earth is going to almost be like the pre-flood stage. Where the lion will lay down with the lamb, and the animal kingdom's not eating each other, and we're not at enemies with them, and, and so it'll be a time of peace here on planet Earth. He has the power to bind Satan and to destroy the Antichrist and the false prophet and throw them into Gehenna, which is hell, and take Satan and put him in the abyss for a thousand years, to, only to let him out at the end of that thousand years for a brief moment of time, and then he is cast into Gehenna, which is the ultimate hell uh, that, that God has created for Satan and his angels. He has the power to crush the armies of the world. Jesus comes in great power. He comes in 
glory. It's, it's God's glory that is presented like the light of God, the Shekinah glory of God, the essence of God in, in displayed in brilliant light. I mean, when Moses went on the mountain to gather the Ten Commandments and he was in the presence of God and experienced the radiance of God's glory and he came off that mountain that his face shone so brightly that the people couldn't look upon his face anymore, so he had to veil his face. And so this glory is like the light of God's presence, but it's also the majesty, the wonder, and the awe of God. In other words, there are attributes of God that are unknown to us now that we will spend eternity understanding as God begins to unfold those attributes that we have never seen, nor have we ever experienced. It's like the tip of the iceberg, and he will come in this glorious authority and power, blinding, brilliant display of power that defies human description. And so the kingdoms are his, and he, he will reign forever and ever. And if you were to go to Revelation chapter 19 that describes in detail this coming of Jesus, uh, you will notice that 1911 says that God opened the heavens. There's only two times that phrase is used. The first time it was used of John to let John in to see what was about to happen, and now it's to let Jesus out as he comes to take back what is rightfully his, which is the title deed to the earth, his creation. He, he created the heavens and the earth by him, for him, and now he comes back to reclaim from Satan what is rightfully his. And in Revelation 19, I'll just give a couple of descriptions here. It says he's a rider on a white horse, faithful and true. Old Testament says our king will come riding on a donkey. Remember, he comes in the, in the great on Palm Sunday as he comes into Jerusalem that final week of his life. And he's coming as the suffering servant. When Jesus comes back, he's not coming as the suffering servant. He is coming as the conquering king. He is coming not as a mild lamb, but he's coming back as the king of kings and the lord of lords, the lion of the tribe of Judah. No more meek and mild Jesus. He said he's coming, and he's going to be faithful, and he's going to be true. He's faithful to keep his promise. His words are always true. That's why Jesus said, you know, heaven and earth may pass away, but not my word. I'm, I'm going to cross every T, dot every I, put every, every period. I mean, what I have said, this is exactly what is going to unfold. Contrast that to Satan, his enemy, his natural enemy, who is a liar, and Jesus said he is the father of lies. And it says, and with justice he will judge and he will make war. And so he comes to make war against Satan, the Antichrist, and all those who have gathered in the valley of Megiddo. And here in Revelation 19 it says, his eyes are like blazing fire. Now obviously, again, he's using apocalyptic language. John is trying to describe you know, what, it, what that simply is like. It's like laser vision. In other words, there is absolutely nothing that goes unnoticed by Jesus. When he comes back to earth, he's going to know every person. He'll know every thought you ever had, every motive you ever had, everything you've ever done, anything you've tried to hide. You cannot hide it. And so he comes in this blazing. I mean, think about when Jesus gave his report card to the churches in the beginning of the book of Revelation. 
you know, from the outside, it looked as though the churches were, you know, pretty good. Like the doors are open, they're coming, they're worshiping, they're praying, they're singing, um, they're, they're teaching God's word. And from all external appearances, it appeared as though the church had it together until Jesus had his blazing eyes, his laser look upon them. And five out of the seven, they didn't get a real good report card. And it says he has a, he ha, his head has many crowns. It's the crown of every king. You know, people sit on their thrones, and in the book of Psalms, it says people sit, you know, the, the kings and the rulers of the world sit on the throne, and, oh, we're going to do this, we're going to do this. And the, and the Bible just says God in heaven just laughs. Like, you're not doing anything apart from me. And it says he, he has a name that is written on him, a name that no one knows which people always ask me, Pastor, what does it mean? No one knows. <laughs> but I do know that names in the Bible reflect character. And so apparently there is some aspect of Jesus' character that is still unrevealed and something special about him that we are yet to learn. And so our God is so great and so awesome, so full of splendor and glory and powerful and majestic that, again, we've just begun to understand the smallest tip of the iceberg of who he is, of his splendor and his majesty, and the things about him our minds cannot even begin to understand or contain, and our lips cannot even begin to, comp to, to utter or com you know, comprehend. But when we get to heaven, see, this is why you're going to spend all of eternity as God unfolds himself, because God is so vast and so big and so deep and so wide and so high. He is the God who created everything, which means he's outside of time, space, and matter. And if you're outside of time, space, and matter, you can probe the depths of God from now for all of eternity, and you'll never get to the bottom of it. And it says that when he comes back, his robe has, has been dipped in blood. Where does the blood come from? Well, the blood is the cross, right? So Jesus comes he came to offer grace. We're living in the age of grace. We've talked about this. Jesus died on the cross to offer grace to us, an opportunity for us to receive him in our life, to be Savior and Lord of our lives, and thus enter into a relationship with Christ and with our Creator and have all of our sin debt forgiven by God and indwelling us by the Holy Spirit, taking we who are spiritually dead, bringing us back to spiritual life. But this time, the blood's going to represent judgment because justice must be rendered upon Upon the evil in the world. And so when it comes back, the Bible says in Revelation 4, 19, 14, that he brings with him the armies of the heavens as well as the saints of God who have now been robed in white. Why are we robed in white? Because we've entered, we've entered prior to this. When we, you leave this world and the rapture happens, you're going to experience the judgment seat of Christ. You're not there to determine whether or not you're going to heaven or hell. Uh, but you are going to be rewarded or a loss of rewards for the things that we've done here on earth. And so we are then robed and we are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. And Jesus, the Bible says he will come back and rule with an iron of scepter and he will defeat his enemy. Now, you would think, you would think, Satan knowing all this, why would you gather the armies? He's not stupid. He can, you know, the, the Bible's written. He knows what it says. Here's a lesson. <laughs> when your heart is so full of hatred and pride, you won't see anything clear. You think in your prideful mind, somehow, some way, 
Satan believes he's going he's to defeat Jesus at that battle, and Satan is going to keep what he believes is rightfully his, and that is planet Earth. And he will be adored and worshipped for all of eternity. So Matthew chapter 24 and verse 31, he tells us that, and he sends his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds of the earth. Who are the elect? These are the people who are going to be saved during the tribulation. Remember, at the beginning of the tribulation, God will set aside 144,000 Jewish, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, and they will be the flaming evangelists going to the four corners of the earth, spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. Many people will be saved during the tribulation. Many will die as martyrs during the tribulation. But at the end, when Jesus returns, there will be many people alive on earth who are, in fact, followers of Jesus Christ. And so at this time, when Jesus defeats the armies, and he takes the false prophet, and he takes um, the Antichrist, and he casts them into the lake of fire, the lake of Gehenna, as Jesus described in the New Testament. He will take Satan then and put him in the abyss, the beginning of his thousand-year millennial reign. And at the end of that, um, Satan will be loosed for a, a season, a rage war again. That will be soundly defeated very, very quickly. And so after that, there's the great white throne judgment, the destruction of the present heavens and earth. God will recreate the heavens and earth. The new Jerusalem comes down to be the capital city of the new heaven and earth, which is here on planet earth. And so the question is, uh, at the time of Jesus' return, um, are you ready? You know, that's the ultimate question people have to ask. Are you ready? Are you ready for the rapture? Are you ready for his return? Or maybe you die before the rapture. The fact of the matter is, are you ready to meet the one who came to offer his life in replacement of yours when you meet him face to face. That's what salvation's about. It's the gospel. Here's the second one. The time of Jesus' return feels like normal. It's going to feel like normal. We think that just because there are passages that talk about the end, that everyone will realize that the end is here, but that's just not the case. Jesus said business will be going on as usual. People are going to be marrying and they're going to be uh, eating and drinking and all the other things that we do in life. And uh, here's how he describes it in verse 36. He says, no one knows about the day or the hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the coming of the son of man. For in the days before the the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered into the ark, right? So life was going on as normal, right? Nobody, judgment's about to happen. They don't even realize it, right? This is going on with our life. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. This is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. And he says... Um, So I lost my place here. Now, we'll just stop right there for a minute. We'll pick it up in a minute. So what, is it, what does it mean by the days of Noah? Well, what was it like in the days of Noah? Well, you could go back and read Genesis chapter 6. So let me just give you a couple things that it was like in that day that we see right in our day and time unfolding. First of all, Genesis 6.1 says it was a time of population explosion. Okay, uh, The planet was increasing in number. And so uh, when you think about, uh, you know, I don't know the exact year of Noah, but we do know this, that from the time of Noah to 1867, 1867 is when this planet hit one billion people. 
And then in 1935, less than 70 years later, we went to 2 billion people. So in 70 years, we doubled the Earth's population. 1965, just 30 years later, we went up to 3 billion people. 1995, just 30 years after that, we're up to 6 billion people. So we've doubled the, again. And 1995 to today, we're about 7.5 to 7.8 billion people. Now, the question ultimately is, how many people can the planet handle? And this is a question that has plagued scientists. They're trying to figure it out. Well, how, many, how many people can the planet handle uh, without sending us in some kind of, you know, head spin? And so science has said that really the maximum the planet could handle is 10 billion people. Now, the, given the fact we are doubling uh, in less than 30 years, you do the math, right? So you, you can see that... If they are right, which I don't know if they are right or not, but here's what they say, that by 2050, science estimate, scientists estimate that there will be 9.8 billion people on planet Earth. That's their estimations. My point is simply this, is the planet population is escalating, which talks about birth pains, that what? In frequency and intensity, because it's a sign of the days of Noah, is a preparation Number two, it was a time of sexual confusion. Uh, you, you will read in Genesis chapter 6 and verses 1 through 5, a very weird story, and it talks about the sons of God, and whenever you see the word, the term sons of God, it's used in the book of Job, it is referring to angelic beings. And in this case, in Genesis, it's referring to fallen angelic beings, because it, it was during that time that the sons of God were... Um, were having sexual relations with women, and they were formulating this, this, this um, giant um, kind of uh, super-breed human being. Now, the Hebrew word um, nephal is, means a fallen one, if you pluralize that, and Genesis calls them nephilim. And so you just have this hybrid between angelic beings and human beings. And right after that, as in verse 4, it says, and everybody, everybody was just doing what was so evil in the sight of God. I mean, just every intention of their heart was just purely evil. We'll get that in a moment. But this is a weird thing in the Bible, right? And so the primary reason the flood came was to wipe out this, this super race of, you know, fallen angelic beings intermingling with humanity. And so Noah and his family were the only ones who were saved from that. It was a great time of sexual confusion, and certainly we have ramped that to the nth degree in our society. You go on any college campus now and ask them how many genders there are, and now we're up to 50 or 59. I can't remember how many it is now. And so now, you, you know, we're letting kids to determine if, whether they want to be male or female. And so we could just go on and on about the sexual confusion. Now, 50 years ago, this was not an issue. 30 years ago, this was not an issue. But it's becoming more and more of an issue. And again, it's ramping in intensity and in frequency. And there's no end in sight where all of this is going to unfold and unravel. And how it's going to impact society as a whole as this thing is rolling its way out. So we live in a culture when even now the most basic things have gotten so convoluted and so confused that it's all part of a greater problem. Thirdly, it is a time of evil imaginations. The word imaginations involves the word images. The people were not only were thinking evil, but 
in Genesis, but they were able to engage in evil through images. That is, images in your mind, right? This has never been more possible than in the generation in which we live because we have iPhones, right? So, um, and, and what are the, I mean, think about this. It is estimated that by the time you reach your teenage years in our society, that you have witnessed over 200,000 deaths, murders, annihilations, whether it be through TV, movies, video games, or any other kind of social media. And that's why we have become a culture who has desensitized ourselves to death. This is why we can abort a baby all the way up to the time of giving birth because we're so desensitized to death now that it's just like, oh, it's just, you know, it's, it's just a thing. It's just this. And so we, we are completely reconfiguring our thought processes. There's also why kids in middle school students are having difficulty with normal relationships because of the accessibility and the proliferation of pornography. I mean, it is a very well-known fact, very well-dated fact, through not just through science but through the medical field, that right now the highest rate of ED is coming in, in kids who are like from their late teens to their early 20s because they've watched so much pornography, and you know what results in that. I'm not going to get into that. Uh, in that now, a, a, a live person just doesn't do it for them anymore because pornography has the ability to actually literally rewire the brain. Neuroscience and, and neuroscience and um, maybe I can get, gain, gain a thought here. Neurosurgeons will tell you, there's books written on this, how it re rewires the brain and all of the, listen, the fallout of all of this is that it just doesn't end with what you're doing in private. The fallout of this is, I mean, look at human trafficking. Since February of this year, 42 girls, 13 to 18, have been abducted into sex trafficking here in Ohio. We are one of the leading states in the entire country on sex trafficking. Not a thing we ought to be proud about. And so our evil imaginations are killing us as a culture. And I want you to understand, this isn't because God is a prude or horrified of the idea of sex. He's the one who thought it up. But sex in the context of a relationship between a man and a woman who are married. And so, he, listen, even secular universities understand how sex outside of marriage is absolutely devastating our culture. You can read about these things. This, these are seculars. There's, these aren't Christian universities. We're talking about secular universities like Harvard and Yale are putting out all kinds of studies about the fallout in culture because of all of this. Do you know that the word evil, spelled backwards, is the word live? Devil, spelled backwards, is lived. It's telling the world, and what happened in Genesis and what's happening in our society is this. There will come the day when we will say evil is good and good is evil. We're here. How else do you explain that a hairdresser who has small children she needs to feed has had to close down her business, reopens it earlier, defying the governor's request, is arrested, put in jail, given a $7,000 fine, while at the same time they've just released 10 very well-known 
sex offenders back out onto the society because they might get coronavirus. So now we're calling evil good and good evil, and people say, well, don't, don't they, do they realize they're doing this? No, they don't. That's the problem. They actually think they're doing it for the good of humanity. This is where we are, folks. Number four, it is a time of widespread violence. The word violence in the Hebrew is the word Hamas. Hmm, isn't it interesting that the largest terrorist group in the Middle East is named Hamas. They graduate 13 to 14,000 youths every year in their terrorist program organization. And we hear about so many bombings and shootings. We've been, again, we've become desensitized to it. And so what Jesus is simply saying is this, is that, you know, it's going to be like normal, right? It's going to be so normal because evil is going to be called good and good's going to be considered evil. It's just the way it is. We're heading there. We're not there completely. Don't get me wrong. We're not there completely, but we're getting, we're getting closer. It's intensifying the frequency and the intensity of it all in our culture, in our society, and around the world. It's happening in our, before our very eyes. Number three, the time of Jesus' return warns us to keep watch. Notice what he says in verse 40. He says, the two men will be in the field. One will be taken. The other's left. The other left, two women will be grinding with a hand mill, and one will be taken, and one will be left. He says, therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. So notice that there is... Two people in the field, one taken and the other left. Now, let me ask you a question. Is being taken a good thing and being left a bad thing? Or is being left the good thing and being taken the bad thing? No, I just switched that, right? I'll, I'll say that again. Is being taken the good thing and being left behind the bad thing? Or is being left the good thing and being taken the bad thing? So Jesus talked about this with his disciples and uh, in Luke's version of this, he gives a little extra detail. He talks about a vulture coming in. And so here's what vultures do. Vultures, you know, pounce on dead things, and they, carry, they want to carry that carcass away. They want, to, they want to take it to a place where they're, you know, for the purpose of destruction, right? So is the person being taken a good thing in this scenario? No, it's not. They're being taken for the purpose of judgment, the one left behind for the kingdom of God. Now remember, this is not a reference to the rapture of the church because when the rapture of the church happens, it is a good thing for you to be going <laughs> and a bad thing for you to be left behind. In this scenario, it's just the opposite. All right? Why is that? Because what he is referring to here is what he describes in Matthew chapter 25 is about the sheep and the goat. So here's the deal. When Jesus comes back and the battle of Armageddon ensues and it's over with, now there will be a judgment that takes place called the judgment of the nations. And Jesus talks about sheep and goats, right? One will be on his left, one will be on his right. And you want to be a sheep at that point because that means that you are going to be a part of his millennial kingdom. But those who are goats are not true believers, not true followers. They're the ones that are going to be taken out, right? So they're taken out for what purpose? For judgment. 
Their soul will be cast in, the, in Hades until the great white throne judgment when the Hades and death and Hades will give up the soul and the body of that individual and they stand the great white throne judgment. Again, they are there to be judged, not whether or not they're going to heaven or hell. That's already been determined through their relationship with or lack thereof with Jesus, but to the degree of the punishment they will experience in hell. And so um, at this point, he says to stay vigilant, to, to keep watching. What does that mean? It means that we ought to filter everything through the lens of Jesus' return. The words we use, the decisions that we make, the integrity that we have ought to be filtered through this fact that Jesus is coming back. It should make a difference in our lives. It ought to make a difference in our behavior. Number four, the time of Jesus' return challenged us to be faithful and wise. Look what he goes on to say. Who then is faithful and wise, and a faithful and wise servant, whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing what so when he returns. I tell you the truth, he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. But suppose that a servant is wicked and says to himself, my master's staying away a long time. And he then begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on the, a day when he does not expect him. And at an hour when he's not aware of, he will cut him to pieces, assign him to a place with the hypocrites where, they will be, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now the word that he uses here, the word wicked, um, is from the Greek word kakos, and it doesn't mean like uh, that person was just like wicked all of a sudden. It means that they were good, but their heart turned to evil, right? At one time they were good, but then they turned to evil, they turned to wickedness. Well, what was the cause of that turning? Well, he says it right here. He thinks his master's not coming back. There's been a delay in his return, therefore, I'm going to move from one. So how does this spell itself out? His belief was, my master's delaying in his coming. And so three things happen when we believe this. That Jesus, yes, he's going to come, but probably not in my lifetime. It's been all over 2,000 years already. So why in the world should that impact me? Why should it affect me on a day-in and day-out basis? You know, after all, if I die before Jesus comes back, all fine and well, I'm going to go to heaven anyways, and uh, it'll all be good then. And so we act as though our whole life is built around just getting ourselves to heaven when that is not the case at all. So the same three things that he points out here are the same three things that happens to us. Number one is that we will offer up excuses for doing God's will. We will offer up excuses to doing God's will. In other words, the first thing the servant forgot is what his master told him to do while he was gone. And see, this happens to believers. When Jesus, his coming is delayed, and we, well, we talk about end times, you know, because a pandemic has happened around the world, and so it gets everybody all fired up. And, you know, when 9-11 happened, again, people were, oh, is this the end time? Is this how it's going to work? World's gonna... Every time something, again, as I started this message, every time something happens that is worldwide, that is negative, all of a sudden we kind of awaken. It's kind of like death. You know, nobody sits around thinking about death, but when somebody in your family dies and you're at a funeral, you have to think about death. When something negative happens, especially worldwide, people are forced to think about the fact, well, maybe Jesus is coming back and, and maybe it's going to be in my lifetime after all. But it's not too far after that, you know, 
Okay, 9-11, churches swelled with people for about six to eight months. And they just went right back down. Out of sight, out of mind. So this is what happens to the church, is that we forget why Christ has us here. We forget that we have been called to make disciples of all nations. I've been called to make disciples. You've been called to make disciples. We're not here just to hang out and arrive safely at the end of our lives into heaven. No, there is a work to be done. Jesus says, I've come to seek and to save that which are lost. And we are not to be standing on the sidelines just waiting for his return. We're supposed to be out on the field in the game. No one wants to be standing on the sideline when the master arrives, trust me. And so God has given us talents and abilities and resources by which we can engage in what he has called us to do. And one of the reasons why we don't is, is that we, some people, they, they just never connect to the cause. Because here's what happens to a lot of people to go to church. All right, they come to church, they don't really get connected, they're not really connected into the ministry of the church, not really connected in the mission of the church. You'll come for a while, you'll sit and you'll observe, and then you know, you'll stop coming or you'll see something better down the road, you'll go down the road, and you'll last maybe three to six months, and that's about it, and uh, you're looking for something different, and so people just you know, move from church to church to church looking for something, and they don't really know what they're looking for, but they're not going to get engaged, and they're not really going to get involved, I just want to be a, a spectator on the outside looking in. And because you're not connected to a group of believers uh, who say, you know, I'm with you in this and we're going to do this together and you've never connected to the cause of Christ and you've never taken responsibility for the lostness of humanity. It's not just my responsibility, it's all of our responsibilities for the lostness of humanity. God has put you where you are as the missionary to those who are without Christ. And so he's given us both a ministry in the church, a mission outside of the church, and that is what we are to be doing. Number two is we will beat up other believers. And so this guy, he doesn't believe, you know, his master's coming back, so he's staying away a long time. So what does he begin to He says he begins to beat his fellow servants. And so it's not that we go around beating up people physically. Here's how it plays out in the church, is that we stop becoming servants and we start becoming critics, and we complain about everything. We complain about whatever it is we want to complain about, and we start railing on other believers, thinking by doing so that makes us look spiritual mature, when in fact it unveils our own spiritual immaturity. Listen, maturity is not revealed by your smarts. Maturity in the Bible is revealed by the level of your sacrifice. That's when you know you've reached it. Jesus said... If you want to have your life, you want to find yourself, you've got to lose yourself. That's how you find yourself in the kingdom. It's not all about you. Number three, and we'll close with this, we will cozy up with sin. Notice it says he's began to eat, drink, and, and, and with drunkards, right? He doesn't say they started there. See, the reality is nobody jumps into the deep end of the pool. What happens in the life of a believer, when you don't really believe that Jesus is coming back at any moment, at any time, you're going to have to face him. And give an account for your life. You don't, if you don't think about that, you don't really live in light of eternity, that that is a reality of what you're going to be facing in eternity, is that we have to all stand in the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for our lives, is that I begin compromising in areas of my life, right? So I can begin compromise a little bit here, a little bit there. Before long, you know, you're in a baby pool, you know, you're like ankle deep, and, and then you kind of get away with that, and there's not many consequences, and you, gotta, you keep wading out, and you keep wading out until you find yourself in the deep end of the pool, 
And then all of a sudden, Satan has set the bait of the trap, and he releases that, and now you're caught up in the consequences of your actions. And that, that's kind of what's going on here. And so um, compromise. So what happens? You either, we either repent or we blame, we justify, and we rationalize. And so that's what this guy was doing. It's like, pfft, no big deal. And so, Jesus says, listen, be faithful, be wise, be prepared, keep watch. It's all going to feel like normal when I return, but it's not anything but normal. You see, when you begin looking through a microscope, if you're looking for the right things, you begin to see the decay and the, the rotting of culture. And it's happening all around us. But if you're not looking for it, you'll never notice it. You'll just become a part of it. And so when Jesus gave his grade cards to the churches, that's exactly what he called them out on. You're supposed to be unique and distinct. You're my bride but you become the, like the culture around you. You're not reflecting me to the world. You're reflecting the culture back to the world. Wake up. It's time to change and head in a new direction. Father, we come before you humbled because these are hard truths. These are things that none of us like to face up to. None of us like to consider in our own lives. But Lord, we thank you. You don't give us these things, again, because you want to pay us back, that you want to judge us, that you want to condemn us. Your condemnation, your judgment fell upon the shoulders of Jesus who stood in our place. But you do want to awaken us to the hour at hand. People all around us, outside of the kingdom. And you've called us to love them. And to share Jesus with them. And so, Lord, I pray that during this time of shutdown, this time of isolation, that if nothing else, Lord, you, you are refreshing the church and that you are reawakening us to the mission and the calling that you have placed upon our lives so that when we come out of our isolation, we come out different. That our new normal is not the new normal of society, but our new normal is just getting back to what you said ought to be normal. And we are so passionate about the gospel. We're so in love with your creation, with people, because they are of eternal value to you, that we will do anything humanly possible to help them come to the feet of Jesus and to experience him to be Savior and Lord of their life. God, I pray that you will use this pandemic to forever change the church. That we will not be the same. We will not back down. We will not shut up. We will, like the disciples in the early church, we are not going to stop proclaiming Jesus ever. We've seen too much. We've experienced too much. We're just flat out too in love with him ever let that happen. And so thank you, Father, for again saving our souls, breathing life into us, giving us a book, a love letter 
that helps us to understand how we need to order our lives and what we should fear and should not fear. Thank you for telling us how it's all coming to an end. Now may our eyes live in light of the return of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're out there listening online this morning and maybe you've never entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ, listen, Jesus so, so loved you that he came into this world to die in your place. Again, not to bring judgment on you. Jesus took God's judgment on the cross. He drank the cup of God's wrath of his justice for you so that you would never have to experience that in your life. And he did it because he loves you. He wants relationship with you. It's a free gift he offers to you. But like all gifts, you must receive it for yourself. And you receive it by faith. And that moment that you acknowledge to Jesus that you've sinned and you believe that he's the son of God who came into the world to die for your sins and he was resurrected from the grave as Savior and Lord, as victor over death and sin. You're inviting him to be your Savior, your Lord, for your forgiveness, for your freedom, to indwell you with his spirit, he says that's exactly what he'll do. He'll take that entire debt of sin and he will mark it paid in full and set your feet on a brand new beginning, a brand new path that takes you to a brand new destination, ultimately called heaven. That's my prayer for you this morning that you would receive Jesus into your heart. And if you'll make that decision this morning, would you just let us know? Go to fbcgrowfort.com at gmail.com and, and let us know. I would love to send you some materials to help you in your brand new walk with Jesus. So we're going to close our time this morning just by singing a praise song. Thank you, thank you, thank you that you've been with us on this day of worship. I hope that it has been helpful to you to understand how God is all going to bring it to an end. But need to know, God loves you with incredible love and he desires relationship with you.